Catechism. But as we prepare to look at that, I'd like to read with you two passages from the Scriptures. The first being Psalm 130, the second being from the start of Zechariah 3. Now, Psalm 130 is one of the Psalms of Ascent. That uh, we think means that these were songs that were written for and that were used for the pilgrims on their way up to the annual feasts. These were songs that reminded them of, of what they need to confess with regard to the Lord, of how they need to stand before the Lord. Psalm 130 is a psalm confessing that forgiveness from sins comes from God and from God alone, and that there is no hope apart from Him. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen, wait for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Amen. Looking then to Zechariah, among the minor prophets, Zechariah was a um, post-exilic prophet, wrote after the... um, People had returned from their exile. And among the messages that he brought to them was this again, that their hope, their standing before God rested not in what they did, but in what the Lord did for them. And so in Zechariah 3, he says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Amen. And we'll talk about what that means in a few minutes. But that is a beautiful picture of the gospel. Now, Lord's Day 23 is the Lord's Day uh, that follows our exposition of the Apostles' Creed. We have been considering together what we mean when we confess, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, etc. We've gone through all of those phrases. What do we mean by this and by this and by this? And then Lord's Day 23 asks us, but how does it help you now that you believe all this? And the answer is, that I am righteous in Christ before God and an heir to life everlasting. Well, how are you righteous before God? Only by true faith 
in Jesus Christ. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments and of never having kept any of them and of still being inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned or been a sinner as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Why do you say that through faith alone you are righteous? Not because I please God by the worthiness of my faith. For only Christ's satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness are my righteousness before God. And I can receive this righteousness and make it mine in no other way than by faith alone. Amen. Beloved disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, as I said, since September, we have been examining what exactly Christians confess when we confess these words of the Apostles' Creed. And in doing so, we've seen that we confess a mouthful with that creed. But we don't just confess theological truths. We confess that this is the truth that identifies us. This is what I believe. This is where my hope is found. This is where I stand. And Lord's Day 23 says, okay, fine. So what? So that's who you are. So that's where you stand. What difference does that make here and now or in eternity? What difference does it make that you believe all this, that you identify with all this? And that's an important question for us to ask. When our catechism was written... These truths that we confess were a matter of life and death. All over Europe, people were imprisoned, they were fined, they were killed for believing these very truths that we've been studying. The Pope commanded torture for those who refused to renounce this confession. It would be foolish to cling to those beliefs unless you were certain that it was both true and absolutely essential. Now, in our age, we've become quite spoiled. Ever since the start of our nation, Christianity has been the default option. Even those who don't truly believe anything, if asked what religion they are, they'll shrug and say, "Eh, Christian, I guess. There's no penalty for claiming to believe these things. But that's in the process of changing. Increasingly, Christianity is falling out of favor with those who wield power in our nation and in our culture. That means that claiming to be a Christian will very soon come with a price tag. Folks will, and in many places already do, look down on you, scorn you, say unkind things about you, and it's likely to get far worse than that. You need to ask... Is it worth it to me to confess these things? Is it worth it to me to be called a Christian? And am I willing to pay that price? Am I truly committed to that confession? We we can't say yes to that unless we know why. 
But here's the thing, unless you can say yes to that, unless you can say with the utmost conviction, this is where I will stand, this is where I must stand, this is what identifies me, unless you say that, you have no true hope, you have no true comfort in the face of this world or in the face of eternity. Because what Lord's Day 23 reminds us, and young people, this is a reminder that you need very much because you're on the front lines. You're the ones who are being bombarded on every side with anti-Christian thought. Those little boxes that you put in your pocket, they are absolutely filled with an anti-Christian message. You watch TikTok, TikToks for five minutes and you are bombarded with four and a half minutes of mockery of the faith, mockery of the uh, the ethics and the theology that come from the Bible. That's only going to spread. So you need to understand the truth that is found here and recognize how essential it is to your eternal well-being. Because what this article, or what this Lord's Day shows us is that Christians alone enjoy comfort. I'm not talking about the comfort of crashing on your couch and watching some videos. No, I'm talking comfort. Comfort in the face of death. Comfort in the face of persecution. Comfort that lets you know that you're loved and accepted and that there is someone who delights in you even when the world scorns you and mocks you, when you get fired from your job, when you become bankrupt, when everything turns against you, when you receive that terrible diagnosis from the doctor, when you're conscripted into the army and made to stand on the front lines, when the absolute worst, most unthinkable thing happens, or when that day dawns, the trumpet sounds, and God summons you before the judgment throne. In any of those circumstances... It is the Christian alone, it is the person who stands on this confession alone who has the comfort of life everlasting. That's the message before us this evening, and that message is absolutely essential. Christians alone enjoy the sure comfort of life everlasting, and that is a comfort that originates, we see first of all, a comfort that originates in grace alone. And that's our first point. You understand that faith, True faith is a matter that pleads for grace. Kids, you know what grace means, right? It's the name of our church. We ought to know what it means. Grace means favor undeserved. Help unearned. Grace isn't something that you get with the help of someone else and also my own. No. Grace is what you get when there's nothing that you can do. And that's where faith starts, seeking after grace. And that means that we have to admit that we need help. But you can't seek help if you don't know you're in trouble. I had a friend years ago. I was attending a classes meeting as a fraternal delegate in South Dakota. And uh, the time came for the classes to start and my friend wasn't there yet which was a problem because he was the clerk of classes. They kind of like them to be there when you start the meeting. And uh, so they kind of, well, let's have coffee for another five minutes, you know. And then they started talking a little bit more. And they did everything they could to delay the inevitable. But finally, the chairman said, well, somebody take notes. We got to start. 
And just then, the back door burst open and my friend comes rushing in, disheveled, clearly agitated, apologizes humbly to the brothers of the assembly. said, man, I'm so sorry, I got lost. And in fact, I was 50 miles beyond the exit I should have taken before I stopped and asked for direction. And somebody spoke up and said, why did you wait until then? And he said, because up until then I didn't know I was lost. Until you know you're lost, until you know that you need help, you can't ask for grace. You can't ask for what you need. And so, true hope, true comfort has to begin there, recognizing how lost we are, how hopeless, how helpless we actually are. Psalm 40, David confesses, Evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head and my heart fails me. That's a confession of I'm in trouble. I need help. I'm at the end of what I can do. I am overwhelmed by my sin. There is absolutely nothing I can offer to the Lord. That's where faith starts. Now, of course, saying that requires us to know what sort of trouble are we in? Scripture shows us three kinds of guilt that we all possess. We are burdened, first of all, by covenantal guilt. When Adam sinned in Eden, he was acting on our behalf, right? So whatever he did would count for us, for all of those who were were to follow him, whom he represented. If he had done well, if he had obeyed God, if he had showed confidence in God, we would be perfect today. But he didn't. He rebelled. He broke God's law. He refused to trust the Lord. And therefore we, before we were even born, were guilty. David says in Psalm 51, verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. From the very word, go. We were guilty. We were worthy of God's wrath. But at the same time, not only are we guilty covenantally, we're guilty actually. Because Adam didn't just sin on our behalf. He sinned in a way that made us corrupt. And so from our first moment, we have followed his actions and sinned against God. Every single day we sin. Every single day we add to our guilt before God. And we need to confess that. There's not been a day that I've lived that I've done what is right. And it goes even beyond that. Because we're also guilty of sinful desire. Jesus says in Mark 7, From within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So we need to confess not only that we're covenantally guilty and guilty from actual sin, but guilty also of desiring what is evil. Now this guilt that we carry, it's not insignificant. That's what God shows us in this reading from Zechariah 3. Here we find the high priest Joshua. Now as the high priest, he stood before God as a representative of the people. He's a living image of us, in other words. And he stands before the angel of the Lord, which in this context is a representation of Christ. He's standing before the judge of all mankind. And Satan, 
stands at his side to accuse him before Christ. And he has ammo for that attack. Because as we read in verse 3, Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. Now that clothing is significant. Often in scripture, clothes are representative of the person wearing them. So a person wearing sackcloth, which was kind of like a burlap sack, only darker. Uh, the, the roughness, the itchiness, the darkness of that clothing represented mourning, right? Whereas a priest, when he went to his appointed rounds at the temple or the tabernacle, he wore linen clothing, which was blindingly white, representative of holiness and purity. Well, here Joshua, the high priest, rather than wearing that white linen, he's wearing filthy garments because his garments represent sin, our sin. Satan, Satan's about to accuse him because he has those filthy garments on. How dare you approach God covered in your sin, covered in your defilement. You're worthy only to be cast out from the presence of God. That's what Satan wants to say. And that's an accurate representation of our condition. Because of the guilt of Adam's sin, because of the guilt of our sins, because of the guilt of our desires... We are clothed from the start with those filthy garments of our guilt. Those who are clothed with that filth are unworthy of God's love, unworthy of fellowship, unworthy to even approach the Lord. They're worthy only of God's wrath. It's what we heard in Psalm 130. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The answer is not one of us. So whatever comfort we might have, it can't come from us. Children, young people, get this straight right now. Whatever hope you have in the presence of God does not come even in the smallest bit from you. Every stitch of clothing you wear before Him of yourself is defiled. Right? We need grace. We need help, favor that is undeserved, unearned by us. And that leads to the second aspect of our comfort. Ours is a comfort resting on Christ alone. True comfort is found by acknowledging that not me, not my church, not my family, not my country, but Christ is the help that I crave. That's why He came. His purpose in living, in dying, in rising again was to help us. And this Redeemer is at the heart of everything we we confessed in the Apostles' Creed, isn't it? He's the one who allows us to know God the Father as our Creator, as our Provider. He's the one who came as the Savior as the perfect fulfillment of prophet, priest, and king, as the one who came as one of us and yet fully God, uh, fully God as well, as the one who suffered and died for the sake of our sin, but also who rose triumphant over death. He is the one who sent the Holy Spirit so that through him our hearts could be melted, we could be brought to faith, we could be incorporated into the people of God. All of this confession revolves around Christ. And right at the heart is the provision that he provides for us in our sin. Our catechism shows us that it's a twofold 
provision. Wrapped around his passive and active obedience. Now, that's a, those are theological terms, but they're helpful. In truth, all of Christ's work is one whole. It's undivided, undivided. But theology is a matter of making distinctions, right? When Jesus came to deliver us from our sin, he did so through two kinds of obedience. One is passive, one is active. In Lord's Day 23, we're told that God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. As if I had never sinned or been a sinner, as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. Christ was passively obedient for us, first of all. That's what his perfect satisfaction is all about. In Zechariah 3, we read that he was standing there with filthy garments, and the angel said to those standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. That's the first thing we need. We need those filthy garments that defile us, that make us unworthy of God, taken off of us. But they can't be taken off and cast on the floor because then God is unjust. Somebody has to wear those garments. Somebody has to suffer for that sin. That's Jesus' passive obedience. He, the perfect one, he, the one who sat eternally at God's right hand, he came and he put our filth upon himself. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That's what he was doing on the cross. He was suffering the penalty for our sin. He was suffering God's wrath against our rebellion. He was paying the full price for our guilt, all of it. The covenantal guilt, the actual guilt, the potential guilt of our thoughts and desires. The cost of that is death. The cost of that is death, being forsaken by God. Elui, Elui, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cries out that the crowd might recognize that he is truly what he looks to be. He is the one hanging on a cross, hanging on a tree, forsaken by God. Not because he did anything wrong. Pilate confessed. I find in him no guilt but because he was wearing our garment. He passively suffered because of the sin that we had committed. But it wasn't just a passive obedience. That was his satisfaction for our sin so that we could stand before God as those who had never sinned or been a sinner. All that guilt was cast away. But then he does more, doesn't he? And he said, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. Christ was not only passively obedient, he was also actively obedient. He did everything that God commanded mankind to do. The covenant of works is what Adam broke. He was supposed to be obedient to God, and he refused. So Jesus fulfilled that covenant for us. He was perfectly obedient from the very start. 
Everything that God said to do. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, all the time. And Jesus did. Love your neighbor absolutely as yourself. And Jesus did. Without fail, without flaw, without any limitation. He was perfectly righteous. And that's the garment with which he clothes us. God made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But he also, that turban... That turban is the priest's turban. It's made out of linen. It's white. It's pure. It also had on the front of it a gold sign that said, Holy to the Lord. Because that's what that white linen represents. Holiness. Righteousness is doing everything right before God. Doing everything we're called to do before the Lord. Holiness is avoiding every stain of sin. That's why those priests had to wear linen. My wife knows better than to buy me anything white. It won't last, right? But Christ, with Him it lasts. He did nothing that would defile His perfection. And He puts that on us too. So that in Christ we can say, I am given the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. That's what he did. And that alone can be the source of our comfort. In ourselves, not one of us is able to come before God with anything but a worthiness of his judgment. But if we come in Christ, if we come looking to him then all the punishment for our sin has been paid. All the righteousness and holiness He expects is upon us. Graciously, notice that. Well, we'll get to that in a minute. But but graciously given to us. Joshua just stands there while Christ clothes him with what he himself has earned. But there's one last aspect of our comfort that we need to understand. And that's that not only... Must we seek a comfort that originates in grace alone? And not only must we see that that comfort rests on Christ alone, we need to see that the only sure comfort known to man is received through faith alone. God's people take comfort in knowing that they stand entirely and eternally by what Jesus has done. As a people, we expect to receive life eternal, life without end. That means we expect to enter God's presence without fear. We expect to approach the day of judgment without worry or concern. We have confidence, even in the face of God's enemies, even in the face of those who would destroy us. But we have it not because what we've done, but only and entirely because of what Jesus did. That's what Lord's Day 23 means when it says we receive this without any merit of my own out of sheer grace. It's only what Christ has done. And even in receiving it, we can't claim anything. We're like the high priest Joshua, whom Jesus calls here a brand plucked from the fire. Folks, that 
is us. A brand, in this sense, is a stick plucked out of a fire. That stick plucked out of the fire, it's ready to burn. It's already begun to burn. And it's like every other stick in the fire. It's good fuel. It's ready to be consumed. It's weak. It's frail. It practically begs to be burned up. That's us. There is nothing in us that differentiates us from all the other fuel for the fire. That judgment that we saw this morning. We're no different than the ones who will succumb to God's justice. The fact that we are delivered... That doesn't rest in us. That doesn't say that we're better. It just says that God is gracious to remove us from the fire. Our confession is that of David in Psalm 40. God drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. That is us. We were buried in the filth and the mire of our sin unable and unwilling to save ourselves, and He drew us up, set us on a high place, and provided everything we need. He looked at our filthy garments. He said, no, took them off, replaced them with that which is holy and righteous and pure. All we do, all we contribute, is passive reception. We contribute to our salvation the way a wall contributes that is decorated with a beautiful mural. That wall at the start, it might be covered with filth and grime, or it might just be plain and white and unadorned. But somebody comes up to it, scrubs it off, cleans it up, begins sketching out a beautiful image of a landscape, begins adding the paint skillfully, blending this color into that, making the image of a beautiful sunset, perhaps, or a wooded scene. What's that wall done to receive this beauty? What has that wall done? Nothing. It stood there. It existed. And folks, we are like that wall. By means of our faith, we receive all the benefits of Christ. We receive the satisfaction for sin. He coming, him coming to pay for all that we have done. We receive the righteousness and the holiness of His absolutely perfect life. We receive it by faith. But even that faith... Even that trusting in Christ, even that understanding of what He's done, He gives it to us. He puts it in our hearts. He maintains our confession. And all the praise, all the glory, all the credit goes to Him who has done this. And there's no other way. Acts 4 verse 12, Peter famously confesses there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus himself said in John 14, no one comes to the Father except through me. That means that everyone who truly is saved, everyone who truly receives the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness that will allow them to stand in God's presence, every one of them receives it through Christ by faith. There's no other way. It's not as though... God saves Christians in this way and Hindus in this way and Muslims in that way. No. If they are saved, they are saved through faith in Christ only. And apart from Christ, there is no hope of salvation. There is no hope of life. There is only the enduring death of eternal wrath. However, in Christ, by faith in Him, O Israel, hope in the Lord. 
For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Psalm 130, verses 7 and 8. He is the one who delivers us, and he alone. Therefore the psalmist calls us to wait for the Lord, and in his word hope. It is because we hope in the Lord, it is because we wait on Christ that we can confidently confess, I am righteous in Christ before God and an heir to life everlasting. Brothers and sisters, this, this, it's a call to evaluate ourselves. Each of us needs honestly to ask the lessons of this Lord's Day, the lessons of Psalm 130 and of Zechariah 3. Each of us needs honestly to ask, do I recognize that if the Lord should hold me accountable for my iniquity, there's no way I could stand? Do I recognize that? Do I recognize that I am Joshua standing there with Satan ready to accuse, covered in the filth of my sin? Do I recognize that there's nothing in me that can make me righteous before God? And... Do I recognize that Jesus did absolutely everything necessary to deliver me? That He's the one who bore the wrath of God that my sins earned. That He lived the absolutely perfect life, doing everything that God commanded, forsaking everything that God forbade. And do I recognize that He has done absolutely all of it, that all I can do is trust in Him with the trust, with the faith that he has given, and do I? Do I? Will I confess with Lord's Day 7, God has freely granted not only to others, but also to me, forgiveness of sin, eternal righteousness, and salvation because of him. Again, Psalm 130 assures us, with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. But to receive that, we must trust in Him. We must put our hope in Him. We must refuse to trust ourselves, even for a little bit. But we must confess that Christ has done it all. So you must ask, is that where my hope is found? Is that the comfort I possess? If it is, If it is, then we need not fear the day of judgment. And we need not fear the enemies of this world. And we need not fear even that little voice in our head that says, You aren't worthy. God couldn't, couldn't hope to love the likes of you. When we hear that little voice, we can say, Get behind me, Satan. Because with the Lord, there is steadfast love. And with Him is plentiful redemption. And He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. He is the way and the truth and the life. And because I trust in Him, there is no fear. No one can snatch me out of His hand. Because the Father who sent Jesus, the Father who gave me to Jesus is greater than all. May that be our confession. And may we therefore stand strong now unto eternity in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you, 
You have shown us a love, a mercy that is infinitely beyond anything this world can know. We deserved your wrath. Clothed with the filth of our sin and of Adam's. And yet, you loved us. Called us a a brand plucked from the fire. Ordered that our defiled clothes might be removed and that we might be clothed instead with the perfect righteousness and holiness of Christ. Father, we stand in awe of such love. And we pray that you would strengthen our faith in Christ, that we might never doubt your love for us in him, that we might never waver in our confidence in him, that we might stand confident and secure in Christ alone. Father, we pray this. We pray this in Jesus' name, knowing that because of him, you hear our prayer. And you care for us perfectly. Amen. Beloved, let us acknowledge in song that it is not by what we have done, but by what Christ has done, that we are right with God, that we have been adopted by Him, and that we are heirs of heaven. As we stand and sing together, number 